The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot 2.0 goes well with both red and white and is perfect with the workout of your choice. Our hosts are Aaron Berlin, a former Kansas Jayhawk who believes the Orlando Magic will win the championship. Eventually. (laughs) His partner is Otto Strong, a man who has covered the NBA since before Dennis Rodman got his first tattoo. Fellas? Catch and Shoot 2.0 is back with myself as well as Otto Strong. Got a good fun show for you today as Bobby Marks will join us. But before we get to that, I want to go ahead and welcome in Otto. Otto, how's it going? Doing well, doing well. How you been, man? How you enjoy well, you, 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 you getting uh, did, you did the parade? You were in KC. Uh, I saw you with, with Patrick Mahomes, right? Well, you, you know, uh, besides the fact that Patrick and I are best friends and we hang out on every Saturday. Uh, no, actually, the euphoric um, kind of just joy that I felt from that parade is slowing down. It's hard to believe, you know, uh, you spend so much of your time going from the AFC championship game to you have a week between the Super Bowl. And then all of a sudden there's a game and a Super Bowl and then there's a parade and you're kind of just like, what in the world do I do now? And so you're trying to figure out post uh, football life. But. We have basketball, and we have a lot to talk about. And as always, the NBA never leaves us wanting, does it? No, it does not. And, you know, it's kind of funny. You mentioned Patrick Mahomes. You mentioned Kansas City. Well, one of the players that played down the road at the University of Kansas was Joel Embiid. And as we know, Joel Embiid is kind of your modern all-star, right? He loves social media. He loves to smack talk. He loves the city of which he plays in. And on the other night, you know, Joel Embiid got himself into a little bit of a tiff. I'm not sure if you saw this, but this Sixers team has really struggled over the course of their last 10 games. They're 500, and this is a Sixers team that a lot of people expected to probably compete for one of the top three spots in the Eastern Conference. Well, it just hasn't been the and uh, just hasn't been in the cards so far for this team. And the other night, playing inside the Wells Fargo Center, they started to boo Embiid and the rest of the squad. And then all of a sudden, he hits a three. He shushes the crowd. Otto, let's start off with that before we get into the second half of this. What are your thoughts on the Sixers fans booing this Sixers squad? Okay, so they, remember, remember, we're talking about Philly fans, you know, the ones who boo Santa Claus and, and uh, boo little kids. Who so, just like, hate everything, right? Like, but, like they but, really don't like anybody. I just, I, you know, they're, they're fine when the, when the trophy goes up or, you know, but otherwise, like, I, I – um, Look, I've seen I've seen this in New York. You're asking a New York guy, so <laughs> there's not a whole lot of. Stuff God, you guys just hate all your teams, don't you? Yeah, we kind we kind of do. We kind of do. Look, you know, you know, guys guys are supposed to know their roles, supposed to do their things, supposed to play a certain way. And if they don't, we're gonna get on them. We're gonna let them know how we feel. That's just that's just what we do. It's you know, East Coast. That's that's how we represent. See, in Kansas City, we're just too nice to everybody. We'll let the Royals lose for about thirty years and never mention it, and then just be happy when they eventually win. Uh, well, well, true, true. So about about the about the, so about the shushing. What's your, what's your take on that? 
So to, to me, it, it's kind of in the cards for Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid has always been outspoken. He's always been personable. And it's one of the things that Sixers fans have endeared him for. Uh, the thing is about Embiid is that he's always been allowed to have this outspoken, loud persona because he has backed it up with his play on the court. And for the most part, since he's been in Philadelphia, those Sixers teams have succeeded. The, the, the problem is, is that when teams go through lulls or they go through spots in a campaign in which they are clearly experiencing the dog, dog days of the season, Fans don't like those athletes when they are outspoken because their team is struggling. For me, Embiid is always going to be someone who speaks his mind, who is flashy, showboaty in some way, shape, or form, and Sixers fans just need to get used to it. He is the face of that franchise, and so for him, there are parts of it where he needs to be a little bit more of a leader, and he needs to pick that team up and make sure that they act a certain way, but I was completely fine with it. Yeah, it, it 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 didn't didn't bother me at all. Like that's the kind of guy that he is. You know, I've, I've met him a couple of times. He's a, he's a jokester, a prankster. Um, you know, he's gonna he's gonna kind of you know get under get under your skin a little bit. That's just the way he is. It's the way he rolls, and I think people are just gonna have to, to deal with it. Now, here's the second half of it. The other day on social, Jimmy Butler, who played with the Sixers last year, and I think a lot of people attributed that run that they had in the playoffs with Jimmy Butler just kind of taking over that team and willing them and the playoffs chimed in on social that he has found a place where villains can succeed and they are appreciated. That would be in Miami. Do you have any problem with Jimmy Butler essentially recruiting Joel Embiid to play in Miami? Look, I have no problem with any, with, with guys recruiting uh, other players. That's, that's never, that's never been my, yeah, that's never been my thing. That's never been something that's bothered me. Um, you know, so, so yeah, I, I, it would be hell of intriguing to see, to see him down there uh, paired up. But uh, like, I have no problem with, with, uh, with, with Jimmy or any other player um, trying to make an overture to, to, uh, to get guys. I mean, that's, that's, that's the way it works these days, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And the player has to be happy with where they're at. But here's the thing I keep going back to, Otto. Can you imagine Joel Embiid in South Beach on a day-by-day basis? Just one, all the Twitter and social stuff that we would get from him, but also seeing Embiid back with Jimmy Butler, that would be a lot of fun to watch. It would be a lot of fun, but I don't know about that. Do they make samples that big? They have a lot of custom samples. <laughs> Got to get those bright little big <laughs> flip-flops, I guess. But but no, it would it would be it, it, they would be. I mean, they're 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 uh, surprising. Miami is surprising a lot of people now. They'd be really formidable. Um, you know, if he was down there as well, I can't I can't really picture what that what that would look like. Uh, upset the balance of power in the Eastern Conference for sure. Yeah, it would certainly, I think, make them a top three team no matter what. But all right, enough of that. Let's go ahead and welcome in the one and only Bobby Marks. And today we have the honor of being joined by Bobby Marks. Bobby Marks is the NBA front office insider for ESPN and has spent 20 years with the NBA, including five as an assistant general manager of the Brooklyn Nets. Bobby, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, no problem. So uh, there's been a lot going on uh, in, in your world. Uh, why don't you uh, tell, us, uh, tell Aaron and myself about what, uh, what's been happening? Well, we just got through the trade deadline, which was, um, you know, the 6th of February, which you know, it was a, a quiet period up until about the, the, the last week uh, heading in. There was only about five trades from you know, mid-July until uh, Willie Cauley-Stein was traded from um, Golden State to Dallas. And then it felt like the uh, the dam broke on a Tuesday night where 
you know, we saw a 12-player, a uh, four-team trade. One of those rare trades happened between Minnesota, um, you know, Houston, um, you know, was certainly part of that. Denver was a third was a third team, um, and the that led into the uh, led into the trade deadline. And we saw you know, usually the deadline is a lot of teams usually get their work done beforehand. We usually just see more financial type deals. Uh, teams looking to shed money off off the um, luxury tax teams looking ahead towards uh, the summer to, to become a, a player when it comes into free agency. Um, but we saw a lot of big names move, you know, Andre Drummond, D'Angelo Russell, um, you know, Andrew Wiggins, Marcus Morris. Um, so some moves um, were done for the future. The Andre Drummond trade to Cleveland was more geared towards the future. And there were some deals that were done now. The, you know, the Marcus Morris trade from, um, from the Knicks to the, the, the Clippers was certainly a, kind of a win now, win now trade. Yeah, absolutely. Bobby, and before we get too far into this, I, I do think, and this is Aaron Berlin, thank you for joining us once again. I do think as someone, you know, who kind of grew up in that Nets organization, spent five years as the AGM, you can kind of tell our listeners what these conversations are like, you know, what the due diligence process is uh, for a front office going into an NBA trade, trade deadline. What is that process like? How long do these conversations take place and how early do they take place? Well, these conversations have been going on for, you know, a long time. It usually starts with a call. Um, you know, every team, you know, has a checklist of, of uh, things they're looking for. Um, most of the time, the, the um, responsibility is split amongst two people, usually the general manager, maybe the assistant GM, director of scouting, where you're just kind of calling teams and just, it's really just a, like a, a welfare check, you're just checking in and uh, seeing how that team is doing, what are they looking to do. If there is a need, for an example, if, um, you know, Dwight Powell tears his Achilles, of course, Dallas was looking for a center. So um, it, it's more about just ch- kind of checking in. Um, usually what happens, and you saw this, this last week, was when there's a deadline to things, then there's certainly a sense of urgency, right? You know you have until 3 o'clock on Thursday um, to get a deal done, where there are also times where, you know, if you're the Utah Jazz, and you are struggling, and your your backcourt is depleted. My colleague gets injured in, in um, you know late December. Then you're then you can't wait until um, early February to do a deal. And you saw them go out and get Jordan Clarkson. So there's there's sometimes where the, the deadline is, is dictated as far as um, you know teams wait up until two o'clock on um, on Thursday. We saw that with the Clippers. Um, or there's times when you you need to go out and do a deal. Um, if it's Jimmy Butler a year ago that got traded in um, in November, but a lot of the time, as I said, it's just kind of calling teams and, all, you know, sometimes, you know, deals just don't happen, you know, within a, an hour micro, uh, microcosm there. It's, it's kind of a lot of legwork that maybe even started during the summer. Um, if D'Angelo Russell, if you have D'Angelo Russell in Minnesota on a recruiting visit and all of a sudden he does a signing trade to land himself in um, Golden State, kind of knowing that that's not going to be a long-term fit, then yeah, then you kind of keep tabs on where D'Angelo Russell is. If there's an opportunity to get him during the season, you saw that with Minnesota and, and Golden State. Or or there's just times when, you know, you could, uh, you know, I, I, I've used this example before, you know, we, we back in Brooklyn, we needed a shooter uh, during that 13-14 season, and, um, you know, Sacramento was struggling, and um, we, I reached out to um, Pete D'Alessandro, who was their, their GM at the time, and, and asked about Marcus Thornton, and we were able to get a deal done the next day. So sometimes these, de- these develop within three or four months. Sometimes it develops within, you know, within 24 hours. 
Bob, did you your uh, your favorite move? Favorite move. You know, we yeah we you know one of the better moves what we made. Um, we traded Terrence Williams to Houston, um, and uh, this was more of a December deal. It wasn't a trade deadline deal. Uh, we we moved him to Houston. Um, Joe Smith, who was the number one pick, well, you know, we got Joe probably in the later stage of his career, went to the Lakers. And we wound up getting Sasha Vujic, who was in, um, you know, with the, who had played for the Lakers. And we wound up getting two number ones out of the deal just because you know, Terrence was a high lottery pick. Um, I think it was all rookie or second team. Uh, was only in, you know, year two. And um, Houston was looking for a big wing, a guy who can kind of play point guard. And um, yeah, we wound up moving in and wound up getting two number ones that we, wind up using um i believe one was used in the uh in the darren williams trade in uh in 2000 um 2011 uh, we used the second one i'm not sure what the where we used it maybe in the pierce garnett trade but yeah i like you know those are the type of you know when you're kind of building up your assets i think the the hard ones are when as i said you're kind of you have a deadline and you are forced to do something that you probably would not normally do in the off season when there's not a wins and losses that you're looking at and you kind of feel a little bit more pressure. Those, I think you can kind of get a little bit reckless there. Bobby, what about teams that, that aren't necessarily contenders and they aren't necessarily sellers? They're just kind of in that middle area. You know, I look at, because I'm in the Orlando area, because it's a team that I followed a while, but for instance, a, a team like the Magic. They were a playoff team last year, but when you look at their collective parts, they're not really a championship caliber team, and they do have some decisions to make, most notably uh, with Evan Fournier. And, you know, they had the big summer last year, but how hard is it for a GM like Jeff Waltman, and I'm just using this as an example, to kind of evaluate your team and look at what's working and what's not? And then when you're pressured with a deadline scenario like they were last week, how hard is it to kind of make a tough judgment call on your team and decide if they're good enough or not? Well, I think it's extremely hard because, um, you know, the deadline doesn't represent, you know, um, like, you know the, the halfway point of the season. You know, for a lot of teams have, what, 27 to 30 games left. So if you are a team like Orlando, who's, you know, sitting in the eighth spot, and, and I think there is a priority to get to the playoffs, um, you you don't want to do anything that can kind of, um, you know, put you back in the lottery there. And if that means if you're moving an Aaron Gordon and you're trying to get draft picks, um, that's why it's, I think it's such a, a challenge to do one of these big blockbuster deals. And then as you saw there, you know, when you do the, when you do the trade, you guys got a report. They got to take their physicals. Maybe they missed two or three games here. Um, you know, you finally got, uh, you know, Andre Iguodala on the court over the weekend in in, uh, in Portland. That took a couple. And that was, you know, that was Sunday, I believe, and uh, that trade happened on Thursday. So it is hard to do these type of deals, um, especially when you are, as you, as you mentioned, Orlando um, at the deadline. You're basically tinkering with your roster. Um, those, you know, what you probably want to do is wait into the offseason, assess where you are, if you lose in the second round two years in a row, and then figure out kind of what what needs to be done. Are we content just getting into the back end of the playoffs? How do we take a leap into that top five seed? Is it, you know, so that that's that's the beauty of the deadline, right? I mean, you, you, you can audit your team for 50 games, or you can kind of just take a deep breath, wait until the playoffs are over, wait until the offseason, kind of meet as a group. And then you have, you know, May, June, and leading up until the uh, the draft at the end of, um, at the end of June. 
What about championship caliber teams like the Clippers, the Lakers, and the Bucks? You know, the Lakers and the Bucks kind of elected to stand pat, not really making a move. But I thought the Clippers made a really nice move in getting Marcus Morris, a guy who can shoot the three, but also is a little bit tenacious on the defensive side. Were you surprised to see the Lakers and the Bucks kind of stand pat? And then what do you think about the move the Clippers made? Well, well, I think with Milwaukee, Milwaukee's comparable to what we saw with um, Golden State before this season in the last, you know, five years during that finals run, um, you know, three championships is where, you know, they didn't make one regular season trade during that stretch. And you look at where the Warriors were this year, you know, you're in the lottery, you're making trades, you're building up your draft assets. It's hard when you move a player you know, out of your locker room and you're 45 and seven and you're 46 and seven, the last thing you want to do is kind of disrupt your chemistry. And you saw Milwaukee wave Dragon Bender um, and then sign Marvin Williams, who was a veteran. And that doesn't, that's not a move that disrupts chemistry or hurts your, or hurts, hurts your locker room. With the Lakers, the Lakers was, was hard to do because they just didn't have the numbers to stack up as far as for, to make the money work. So if you are, going out and trying to get a Marcus Morris from the Knicks and let's say if Kyle Kuzma was involved, you know, Kyle Kuzma makes $2 million. I mean, you've got to get, you know, around 10, $11 million to send out. So now you're, now you're taking three or four players you're sending out, um, you know, and it's really kind of tilting the scales as far as where your roster is, you know, that's including if you're not including Danny Green. Um, so that's the, that's a hard deal to do also. And I don't, I don't fault the um, the Lakers for kind of standing pat because like, you kind of knew what they had to offer. They kind of showed their hands after they did the Anthony Davis trade. Their draft picks were depleted. Um, their second-round picks were depleted. Kuzma was really their big loan asset. So they're, they're kind of in a holding pattern. They're waiting for one of these players to be bought out of their contracts. Maybe they can go out and, you know, try to – you know, we saw them try to go get Darren Collison, who retired. Um, but that's kind of be their big free, free uh, trade deadline move is, is the buyout market. Um, adding there and the and the Clippers, the Clippers just had the right contract. I mean, that's really what it came down to. They had the right contract, and Maurice Harkless was making right around eleven million dollars. They had um, a really good second round pick from the Pistons that they got in the um, they got from the Sixers as part of that Tobias Harris trade, and they had their own first round pick this year to to trade where the Lakers didn't didn't um, didn't have that. So. When you add those up, and they, there's, I think there's a, there was a swap right in the future in Jerome Robinson yeah. when he drafted in the first round. When you add all those pieces up, it just kind of made sense. You know, we had circled the Clippers all along for Marcus Morris. It was just a matter of the Knicks were willing to kind of get a deal done. And Bobby, who are the best players available in the buyout market? Well, we saw Marvin go off the board right now. He's in Milwaukee. Michael Keith Gilchrist is, in, um, is going to sign in Dallas. He got waived uh, over the weekend here. I think when you when you look at it, it's it's twofold. There's a list of buyout guys, and there's a list of, of free agents, veteran free agents. The veteran free agents are the you know Jeff Green, Amon Shumpert, um, you know now Deion Waiters can go to that list. Um, the buyout guys are, you know, if Tristan Thompson certainly became available, and I don't think he will become you know in the buyout market, um, he would certainly um, qualify. I think it's hard for him to take a buyout. He would lose his bird rights, meaning that the uh, the team he signs with would be restricted as far as who you know what he can sign for. And there's also not much cap space for him to go out and, and sign with the team. So I think I would be surprised if he's in in the buyout market. Um, you were looking at um, you know you look at the bottom of the standings. Reggie Jackson certainly a name that pops in Detroit. Um, we'll see what happens with John Henson, who they just acquired in, in the trade from Cleveland as part of that part of that Andre Drummond deal. 
Tyler Johnson's now available. He was waived over the weekend in, in Phoenix. Um, I always say the, the bio market's a little bit tricky because if you're one of these free agents, um, you better have a landing spot. You know, you're not going to give up 800 to a million, 800,000 to a million dollars and then kind of be out of money and there's not a team to, to, um, to sign that player. I think Minnesota's pretty interesting because they've got Evan Turner and Alan Kraft. So you kind of just take a – you look at the bottom of the standings. You look at some of the veterans that are on expiring contracts. And that kind of um, – those are the players that you um, that you look at. But you do have until March 1st. Um, that's the deadline for a player to be waived and, and eligible to be on a playoff team. You know, Bobby, one of the things I keep going back to is when you look at the deadline, and you mentioned it early on, you know, a lot of teams are not only doing their shopping for how to improve their teams immediately, but they're also doing their summer shopping as well as kind of how to move forward in the summer. You know, one of your strong suits is as a capologist. Can you kind of explain how that works for teams at the deadline as they're analyzing their books and then also moving towards the summer and how that affects them in free agency. Yeah, I think you have to be have some realistic expectations as far as where you are as an organization. And if you are, you know, this summer we're only projecting and we, we before the deadline we we got to the deadline we had about five or six teams in the in the um that had salary cap space and and a lot of them were mid-market teams when you look at Atlanta and Cleveland and and possibly Detroit, Memphis, Charlotte, uh, Phoenix, you know, teams that are not really a desirable, you know, landing spot for free agents or marquee level free agents, um, you have a decision to make. And I said, when Atlanta went out and got Clint Capella um, in that big trade, they did their free agent shopping or part of their free agent shopping in um, in February, where instead of having $70 million in cap space, now you've got, you know, $55, $56 million. So um, you saw that. I think Memphis realized kind of where they are right now. They were not going to be a free agent destination. They they had $53, $54 million. They were willing to absorb that Deion Waiters contract and go out and get Gorgie Jang, um, guys that have money into 2020, 21, because they have high value on Justice Winslow, who's got a couple of years left on his contract and is a nice young player, but has been injured. So they were willing to kind of go out and, and take that risk. Um, but there's also the other factor where you look at the Miami Heat who went out and um, did the Andre Iguodala trade with Memphis, gave him an extension, but, you know, put a team option on 2021-22 because they have their sets on a potentially loaded free agent class um, that could include Giannis, you know, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, you know, certainly LeBron, um, uh, Victor Oladipo, some really big names. And that's a big reason why that deal with Oklahoma City fell, uh, uh, fell apart because, you know, Danilo Garnari was not willing to do that, take a team option in, in, in that second year. Um, th- this is really Gallinari's last big contract coming up here. So you have an eye on this summer coming up, and then you also have, you know, the summer of 21, and teams always kind of look at it in a three-year in a three-year window. Bobby, that's a that's a perfect segue for where, where I want to go. So I'm, an, I'm a, a long, long-time Knicks fan. Uh, I'm a guy who loved the Ewing, Oakley, Mason, Starks days. Uh, we're talking about the 21 time frame when the Knicks might be good again. And uh, for, for those re- for those listeners who don't know, um, your 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 photo graced the cover of the New York Post recently. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'd love to get your take on what do the Knicks need to do to return to relevancy, or you know what, just the playoffs, just an eight seed. Give me an eight seed. <laughs> Well, I think first they have to go out and, and um, hire the right coach. I think what they do with the head coach is more important what they do as far as the infrastructure of the front office. I really I believe that. I think 
what you see is when you hire the wrong coach or the wrong fit and you constantly have a rotating door. Um, I saw it in Brooklyn and New Jersey. It really sets the organization back a couple of years here. I think you you saw it in, in Memphis where they went through, you know, Lionel Hollins, David Fisdale, Dave Yeager, and they finally found the um, finally found the right coach um, down there in Taylor Jenkins. So um, that's number one. I think if you're Leon Rose who will you know, take over the head of basketball operations. You've got to find the right guy. Is it is it Tom Thibodeau? Is it Jeff Van Gundy? Is it Mark Jackson? I think you have to have somebody that has a relationship and it has dealt with the New York media before. I, I think it's hard for you to pry an assistant coach and ask him to come in and um, you know do uh, do the job and what you're expecting in New York. Although there are a lot of great assistant coaches out there. I think that's priority number one. I think priority number two is yeah. I think you've got to you know Leon coming from the agent world at CAA, power broker, well-connected, knows basketball. But the agent world and the NBA world is a little bit different from a team standpoint. And it's, you know, a lot of people were making the comparison of Bob Myers in Golden State or Rob Palenka in, in L.A. And, it, and it's different here because, you know, Bob Myers in um, in Golden State didn't go in as the number one guy. You know, he, had, he was the number two guy and he had a year to learn um, there. So, um, that's going to be important. I think he's got to, you know, certainly surround himself with NBA people. I think he's going to have to have, you know, either a cap guy and, um, you know, a GM, a, a director of personnel. He's going to have to player personnel. He's going to have to build out the, that department that has a familiarity. I think he's got to have somebody who's kind of the bad cop for him, where if you were going to look to go out and make these high risk moves, you have someone kind of put the stop sign up and say, Hey, these are the, cause and effect, the, the impact long-term that is going to happen for you. And then I think they have to make a decision as far as what they want to do with this roster, right? They can either be a player this summer in free agency, and that would probably mean you are letting those um, those player, the players that you signed last summer, the Wayne Ellington, the Bobby Portis, the Alfred Payton, the um, Reggie Bullocks, uh, guys that had those partially guaranteed contracts go, and you're going free agent shopping this summer, but also with not a great free agent class. I think the hard part is, is that if you wait until 2021, instead of five teams or six teams with cap space, now you've got 18 or 19. So now you kind of join a really um, crowded field. But there's a lot of different ways that you can construct th this roster here. You have you know, some of your younger players with R.J. Barrett. What's your feelings on R.J. Barrett or Kevin Knox or Frank Nikina? Um, you know, I, I've used Brooklyn as an example um, after I was after I left where, you know, Sean Marks took over and there wasn't much there as far as an infrastructure. But he went out and, and trusted his scouts and found these second chance players and Spencer Dinwiddie and, and drafted Karis LeVert in the 20s and Jared Allen in the 20s and Joe Harris, who was on three or four teams. And what they did was and made the D'Angelo tra Russell trade. And what happened was. They put a respectable product on the court that won 42 games and lost in the first round. And then when it came to free agency, guys like Durant and Kyrie said, you know what, we can just go there, sign. They don't have to trade out any of these guys, and we're going to be a really good team. And I think, I think if you're New York and you were just relying on cap space alone, that we're New York, that I'm Leon Rose, and I represented a lot of um, established players, I think you're setting yourself up for failure. I really do. I think you have to – you have to keep on developing your young players. You have to uh, hit on these second-chance players. I think you have to hit on the draft here. And then when there's an opportunity, when a, maybe a Bradley Beal becomes disgruntled in Washington, you have seven first-round picks in the next four years, then you, then you take advantage of that. So I would stress patience to, to the Knicks fans. Um, 
I know some of them didn't like when I, I compared them to an expansion team last year, a week when I was on TV, but that's uh, the reality. Woj, I mean, what, what makes him the top information guy in the sport? He, he's the best in the sport because his relationships with people. And he's not just out there trying to break stories. I think he's, his relationships with agents or teams or coaches – he doesn't need to call you and ask what's going on. He can call you and ask you how your son is doing or how your wife is doing or how it's going on. It doesn't need to be all about gathering, you know, that he has to go out and gather information or he needs something for you. Um, I think he's trustworthy. Um, I've seen him sit on stuff that he, you know, that maybe he got beat on that um, because he has a relationship with that agent or that player. And that's fine. He doesn't need to break every story here. And I think, I think there's a respectability, there's a give and take between, you know, um, you know, from all aspects of the league. And I think that's kind of why he's the best, um, the, the, the best as far as what he, what he does. You know, Bobby, one thing I keep going back to, and, you know, you've mentioned it a few different times, is the, the relationships that not only a journalist and a media personality needs to, needs to have with agents, but also the front office personnel. H- how important is it from either a general manager standpoint or an AGM standpoint to have a relationship, not only with say Kevin Durant's agent or LeBron's agent, but just how a relationship with those guys can help get you someone else eventually down the road. Oh, I, I think it's huge. I mean, when you look at, you know, certainly the relationships with the agents is big just because, you know, they, they control, I always say you, the teams control the draft and the trade deadline, but the agents control um, free agency, right? You're basically at the mercy of uh, of the agent. So it's building a relationship. It's not screwing them over during a year on a player signing that you may be back out of, or a free agent signing that you back out of. That, I mean, that's important. I think I think I think teams have to have relationships with the media. And 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 I'm not saying that that you know somebody in um, let's say um, New York, for example, has to give away state secrets to me or woes, right? That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I think, I think there has to be a relationship. So when a team does a deal, I can call them and say, all right, give me your take on it. Why'd you do it? And I can kind of try to get out their message. Um, I'm not going to call a team and ask them, Hey, I, I heard you're close to doing something. Give me the details. That's not, that's not my nature of what I do here. Um, I think it's important that teams are, you know, res- respect the media um, if they're closing in on a deal and we get it and we don't get it from you or we get it from like, you know, secondhand, I think there's, I think there has to be a give and take where you can say, yeah, you're on the right path in that kind. Let, let the media, let, let Adrian or someone else do the work and, and they'll be able to go out and get it there. Um, so yeah, I think there has to be, um, you know, it's, it's not just, you know, part of the job of the NBA of a general manager or assistant GM, GM is not just barricading in your locker and worrying about your team. Like there's a lot of different other things out there in the world that you need to focus on and, and the media can help you, you know, it can help you shape your message. Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate that. And you know, that, that's one thing that I've always thought is not only can the media help you in so many different ways, but also just the relationships that you mentioned that you have uh, with the coach as well as with agents help shape a basketball team too. Hey, Bobby, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us. This was fantastic and we really appreciate it. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. Bruh. And now it's time for bro. Last Friday, Dame Lillard and the Portland Trailblazers got robbed. So here's the setup. It was 116, 114. Lillard has the ball time winding down, goes in for what appears to be a layup. Um, Rudy Gobert blocks it, but he blocks it after it hits the backboard. 
can't do that, guys. So I know that. You know that. Unfortunately, the NBA officiating crew that was on that night didn't know that, or at least they acted like they didn't know that. Uh, and so the, the end result is um, Utah wins, Portland loses. My brother week is, guys, you, got, you cannot miss that call. I mean, yes, uh, Portland lost the game, but let's just think about this for a second. If this Western Conference, this very tight Western Conference, winds up tied or or a team is a game out, let's say Portland is a game out of the eighth spot, doesn't make the playoffs, and a, and a, and a Portland squad that has players back doesn't face the Lakers in round one. I mean, I feel like I feel like as a fan, I'm going to be robbed. Um, and I'm, I'm, I don't think that Portland is the only one team that has a beef. I think Houston has a beef. Houston could have, you know, used, used that game to catch, uh, to catch Utah. So it's, it's a long winded way of saying, bro, you guys got to get this right. I mean, that's, it was too big of a call, uh, to miss. I love hearing Otto fired up about something, but you know, Otto, my, my bruh is a little bit different. So I, I live in a world of social media. I love Twitter. I love Instagram and I love kind of the viralness of it and the ability to instantly share a moment and kind of relate it to everybody. But I also think that there are things that happen on social that aren't right. So everybody saw the dunk that LeBron did the other night. That was very reminiscent of a dunk that Kobe did uh, uh, maybe a decade uh, ago. And one of the things that happened with this photo was that it was instantly shared on Twitter, Instagram, websites were grabbing it, but nobody was crediting the photographer. And as someone who does kind of photography on a freelance basis and as a hobby, to me, that is a problem. If you're going to take that photo and you're going to use it for your own goodwill, especially when it's one of the most iconic photos in the NBA, you better damn well relate it back to the photographer. And we're going to do that on this show, Otto. It's Andy Bernstein. You can follow him on Twitter at ABP Photo Inc. Go check him out. Go give him a follow. And if you share that photo, because you probably will, make sure he gets credit for it. Hey, man, I love to hear Aaron fired up. You know it is. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks to listening to another edition of Catch and Shoot 2.0. Thanks to our producers, Bruce Bernstein, Scott Turkin, and our editor, Ben Wolfen. Just a reminder, the Mike Weiss Show does drop each Monday. He had a fantastic show this past week with Larry Brown. Uh, Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt drops each Thursday. And the Pure Hoops Podcast with the one and only BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman drops every Friday. And as always, Otto and myself are back on Wednesdays. Special thanks and a tip of the cap to Bobby Marks for joining us today. But we'll see you guys next week. Captain Shoots 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.